electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner. On day 114 of the coronavirus crisis, the number of cases now in this country tops 800,000 as the Dow suffers another major drop. All right, welcome. Good to have you with us tonight. Our first look at futures right there. Green across the board, but it did follow a tough day on Wall Street. The Dow's 600-point drop. The index now losing 1,200 points in the past two sessions. The S&P 500 and NASDAQ both off more than 3%. The Dow led lower today by 5% drops in Merck and Boeing. Well, while Georgia is getting ready to reopen some businesses uh, on Friday, many other states say they're not there just yet. They're not ready. Let's bring in the former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, with us once again. Dr. Gottlieb, good to have you with us. You said today that cases are probably 10 to 20 times what we're diagnosing. I'm wondering what that means now for the reopening. Well, I think that that was all along that we're not, uh, we're not diagnosing all the cases that are occurring. We're probably diagnosing 1 in 10 or 1 in 20 cases. Um, and we've been baking that into the models that, uh, that we've been using. We know that there's a good amount of asymptomatic spread. Anywhere from 25 to 50 percent of people develop asymptomatic illness. Most people figure it's around 30 percent that are asymptomatic. Uh, and we're not capturing those in, in the statistics. And we're not capturing a lot of the community spread, a lot of the more mild illness that isn't presenting to the hospital. So... We're undercounting um, the total amount of illness with the official statistics on a number that are being diagnosed. But we've been baking that in all along. Um, and I don't think that that changes the calculus about when we're going to be ready to start reopening aspects of the economy. That's not worrisome, though, as we are about to reopen in Georgia and some other states that many more people may be affected uh, and infected than we know? Well, look, I think Georgia um, is one of the states that's a little bit later in their epidemic. They're only um, diagnosing a small fraction of their cases right now. They're one of the um, bottom 10 states in terms of the number of people that they're testing as a percentage of their total population, their positivity rate, meaning the rate of uh, positive cases that they get from those that they test is about 23%, which is very high. So they're still in the midst of their epidemic. And I think that states like Georgia, um, other states in the Sun Belt, Florida as well, that were later to enter their epidemic um, are going to be later to come out of it and need to be cautious. And, and especially states where you see um, under-testing relative to the total population, Georgia certainly falls within that bucket. And you see a high hospitalization rate relative to the total number of cases that are being diagnosed. Those are worrisome signs, and Georgia does exhibit both of those attributes in terms of their official data right now. They have about 20,000 cases total, so they have had a pretty big spread in that, ca- in that state. 
And we know that they're not diagnosing um, a high proportion of their total cases. Georgia's going to start opening restaurants, Dr. Gottlieb, on Monday. I want to show you a graphic from a study from the CDC in Guangzhou, which shows the infections at a restaurant. Uh, I want you to take a look at this graphic along with our viewers, and it shows how the virus spread through a restaurant. You could see the virus, they say, spread through airflow from an air conditioner. How worrisome is that as we think about reopening critical businesses? Well, we know that there we know that spread indoors is a greater risk than spread outdoors. There was a study out about two nights ago that looked at uh, cases of coronavirus in China and compared um, incidents of uh, spread both indoors and outdoors and found that didn't find any cases where the spread was actually among clusters of people in outdoor settings versus indoor settings. And so I think being outdoors is safer. And I think as the summer, as the summer uh, begins and as the weather gets warmer, we need to think about what activities we can take outside. So if we re want to restart religious services or gym classes or even restaurants, thinking about trying to take those activities outside is going to be something that's prudent. Um, it's going to be much safer to hold gatherings outside, hold, hold uh, religious gatherings outside, even set up tables outside. And this is something that local governments can be doing right now, looking at local ordinances that right now might prohibit restaurants, for example, from setting up tables on sidewalks or in parking lots or other shared space, and try to relax some of those ordinances to move more of this activity outside. Um, we know that it spreads much more le easily indoors. We also know it sticks to surfaces. So as the virus itself gets blown around inside indoor settings, and this is something we also saw on, on the cruise ships, on the Diamond Princess, it spreads through, it could spread through air conditioning units or be blown around and adhere to surfaces and become, um, and contaminate surfaces, and that can be a source of spread. Let's talk about testing for a moment. Citigroup was out today, Dr. Gottlieb with a note that was very optimistic on where they think we'll be. I'll quote from it, get your reaction on the other side. We believe 60% of working age U.S. population could be tested by the end of April and 95% by the end of May, meaning almost 90 million sidelined workers could return to their jobs as early as mid-May. Do you agree with that assessment, Dr. Gottlieb? Well, we don't have capacity to test as an element of return to work. And I don't think we should be advocating testing as an element of return to work because we're just not going to be able to do it. Um, I'm not sure if they're talking about PCR-based testing to look for active infection or antibody-based testing. There is some uh, discussion that you can use tests to try to detect antibodies that people develop in response to being exposed to the virus as a tool to make a decision about who can safely return to work. Um, those antibody tests, by and large, are not accurate. They, they over-represent who, who has antibodies, so they have a high false positive rate. So in many cases, they'll say you have antibodies to the virus when you don't. They should not be used for making individual decisions around individual people. They're good for population-based screening to get an overall sense of how much of the population has been exposed to the virus. And they might be good in isolated situations where people where there's a, a high exposure to the virus, for example, healthcare workers or TSA agents or EMT workers who are more likely to have antibodies, those tests might be good in those very uh, narrow settings, but not as a general tool for returning to work. There's another developing story out tonight I want to get your reaction to. An NIH panel now is recommending against using hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, the combination that the president uh, and others have pushed repeatedly. This is from a VA hospital study. Your reaction to that? 
Well, look, it's part of a body of evidence that's been accumulating slowly um, that really isn't showing a treatment effect from hydroxychloroquine. I think there's still some studies that need to get turned over. We're going to have results um, probably sometime in May that are going to be more definitive studies. But this study was certainly suggestive um, of the fact that there doesn't seem to be a robust treatment effect. I think if there was a very strong treatment effect from this drug, you probably would have detected in that study. And that comports with what we're learning just anecdotally from physicians in New York and other cities where hydroxychloroquine has been used very aggressively from the outset of this epidemic. So keep in mind, most patients in, in New York City were getting hydroxychloroquine, and I know a lot of providers who were taking it prophylactically or on the premise that it could um, be used prophylactically to prevent infection, and we're not seeing dramatic results. Um, you're seeing a lot of death and disease in New York City, and so if hydroxychloroquine was working, um, you'd probably see some more treatment effect. Doctors aren't reporting that. And so I think more and more providers are pulling away from it and looking to try to get patients on other protocols, other drugs. In your mind, is it safe to prescribe tonight? It's a good question. Um, you know, the study that you referenced in the VA showed a higher incidence of adverse outcomes for the people who are on hydroxychloroquine. So that study certainly wasn't the kind of rigorous study that we base firm decision-making on. But I think in the absence of convincing evidence that hydroxychloroquine is having a treatment effect um, set against some known side effects with the drug, I think people should be cautious about using it right now until there's more definitive data. It was prescribed very widely at the outset of this epidemic because it was available um, and there was a perception that it might have activity against the virus. But the subsequent data that's accrued really hasn't borne that out. There's a single study people point to right now out of China of about 60 patients that suggested there might be a treatment effect. But that's set against a lot of other evidence now that's shown that it isn't having activity against the virus. And so the totality of the evidence is tipping in the direction of concluding that, at least so far, um, it doesn't appear that hydroxychloroquine is working. There's another developing story tonight as well. A man by the name of Dr. Rick Bright. He is one of the nation's leading vaccine development experts, the director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, no longer leading that organization tonight. What do you make of that? Well, look, Rick Bright's a friend. I worked very effectively with him when I was at the Food and Drug Administration. We shared a lot of public health goals and um, worked on a lot of things together. And I testified alongside him a number of times before Congress. Um, I think he was a good leader of that organization. I was sorry to see him leave. I think this is an inopportune time. Uh, to be changing leadership of BARDA. BARDA is playing a very lead role in trying to develop uh, not just vaccines, but also therapeutics against the virus. And he's well known within the industry that works on those projects um, and has been working very effectively on these things for years. And so this isn't a good time to be changing leadership, in my view, and I would have rather have seen him stay in that role. We're unsure of the reasons behind his departure, but does it hurt our development, Dr. Gottlieb, of either a therapeutic or a vaccine to deal with the coronavirus? Uh, it's not going to help it. Um, you know, changing leadership of a critical agency that's been working alongside the companies that are leading the efforts to develop vaccines and therapeutics here, and an agency that's dispersing a lot of the money that's being used not just to, uh, you know, give grants to some of the manufacturers of these products, but also scale up manufacturing. Um, you know, changing leadership in that organization right now probably is going to set us back a little bit. Um, you know, they, they put in place uh, the person who is his deputy as the acting official. He's a very capable person. He probably knows what's going on at the organization. But Rick's a known, um, a known entity. He's been working very effectively with the companies in this space. And so 
you know, I don't think it's going to propel things forward by having him step aside and step into a new role right now. Finally tonight, Dr. Gottlieb, the CDC director warning today in an interview with The Washington Post that the second wave of coronavirus likely to be worse than the first because it will coincide with the flu. Uh, how worrisome is that? Very worrisome. And it's what we've talked about many times that we face real risk heading into the fall. I think the single um, most impactful thing we can be doing right now is to make sure that we have an aggressive campaign to get people vaccinated to the flu heading into the fall. The more that we can reduce incidence of the flu, the more that we're going to be able to effectively differentiate coronavirus from the flu and reduce burden on the healthcare system. We will have coronavirus outbreaks heading into the fall. Um, typically, manufacturers who make the flu vaccine will manufacture 150 to 160 million doses of the vaccine. I hope that they're thinking about stepping up that manufacturing and manufacturing more doses. There's probably still some ability to do that, to bring out more doses, because hopefully we can make a really aggressive push to get people vaccinated for the flu this fall and really step up vaccination rates beyond what they've been historically. Can you get the flu and coronavirus at the same time? You can. And in fact, there was some reports early on out of China that um, some of the people who succumbed to coronavirus were co-infected with the flu. It might have been the case that they got co-infected with the flu once they entered the healthcare system. But there certainly seemed to be evidence in the literature that um, people who became super infected with other uh, back, other viruses or infections were more likely to have uh, an adverse outcome from coronavirus. And so there were incidents certainly of people who had coronavirus and flu simultaneously. And in fact, uh, people who were presenting with coronavirus early on were being um, empirically treated for the flu just to make sure that they didn't have the flu uh, coincident with coronavirus. Dr. Gottlieb, we appreciate your time as always. Thank you. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb joining us. Meantime, the Senate approving a relief package late this afternoon for independent businesses, along with new money for hospitals and testing. Our Kayla Tausche live with us from Washington once again tonight. Hi, Kayla. Hi, Scott. This package greenlights existing loan programs to expand for small businesses and disaster relief. It also earmarks new money for states and agencies on testing. And despite some senators disagreeing in principle with the price tag and the process, the package passed unanimously. The House is set to vote Thursday. The interim funding deal stands at nearly half a trillion dollars, $310 billion added to the Paycheck Protection Program. $60 billion of that will go specifically to banks with less than $50 billion in assets. There's $60 billion in new loans and grants under the SBA's disaster relief program, $75 billion to reimburse hospitals for COVID treatments, and $25 billion for testing, less than half of which will go to states, who have been asked also to develop strategic plans for how they'll use that testing to reopen their economies. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo met today at the White House with President Trump. Cuomo telling MSNBC it was testing he wanted to discuss. I wanted to have a face-to-face -face conversation. This issue of testing and who does what on testing, uh, we had to get this uh, ironed out, so to speak. This is a very big issue. It's important for states that have a more difficult time reopening, like New York. More money for states and local governments is expected to come in a fourth stimulus bill tonight. Scott, the Treasury Secretary said negotiations on that package will likely also include a payroll tax cut, infrastructure and incentives for entertainment businesses. But he said if the economy can reopen, that will likely be all the money the U.S. needs. Scott.
Kayla, thank you. That's our Kayla Tauscher reporting once again from Washington tonight. President Trump tonight vowing to claw back $8 million from the relief fund given to Harvard University. We've been following several business owners' journey through the loan process, including that of Ashley Kleinschmidt, who just learned her bank, Chase, will not be sending her money. She received an email saying, quote, the SBA has approved loans that will exhaust all the funding available. The money is gone. Ashley joining us now. She owns the Moi Makeup and Lash Bar in New Jersey. Ashley, it's good to see you once again this evening. So you couldn't get the money. Are you heartened now by the fact that more money was approved? And will you reapply? Hi, Scott. Um, I mean, I'm I'm staying positive, that's for sure. Um, I'm waiting to hear from Chase. They say that my application is still being processed, that it hasn't been denied necessarily. So now it's just a matter of waiting. And what was your initial reaction when you did hear from Chase that the money was gone? I was shocked, to be honest. I mean, I applied the first day. I sat down, took the time. I did everything right. And so I thought I was ahead of the game. Um, you know, I don't know. I was surprised to hear the news that big corporations got the money instead. Um, disappointed, really. Yeah. What, was, um, what did you have to do when you realized you weren't going to get the money? Did you have to lay off the employees you were trying and, and hoping to keep? Um, for right now, they're still furloughed. I don't want to lay them off completely. As you know, we're not able to have our business open and running. So I've just been, you know, hunkering down and trying to be as patient as possible. Have you tried or thought about going through a different bank? You know, I haven't. Um, Chase has been my only bank. Um, so I might be something I might start looking into, to be honest. Um, but they did say that my, um, my application is still being processed. So they haven't denied me necessarily. So I'm trying to stay positive, but, you know, I might, I might have to. <laughs> well, we wish you well. We hope you do get the money. And hopefully now that there is more approved, you will, in fact, get that. That's Ashley Kleinschmidt. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Here's what's coming up on this CNBC special report. Markets in turmoil. A major fight is shaping up that's likely to impact thousands of businesses, big and small, across the country. Tonight, a preview of the battles shaping up in the insurance world over this killer virus. Plus, former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel on how cities will make themselves safe for business again. And we gave away 15,000 masks. Filling a need and stepping up. Before the break, images from across this great nation on the 114th day of the coronavirus crisis. horizon for financial markets at pgim it's a question that over 1400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals specialized across asset classes but united in collaboration our teams provide global and local expertise our investments shape tomorrow today pursue your tomorrow with pgim 
a leading global asset manager. Healthy returns. CNBC's virtual summit is May 12th. For more information and to register, go to cnbcevents.com slash healthy returns. Welcome back. People in New York State must now wear masks in public. CNBC's Andrea Day tonight with how one packaging executive is stepping up to make sure his neighbors have what they need. We gave away 15,000 masks, 3,500 cars lined up on the roads. It was crazy. We're going to win this war. We were just tossing them in the window like the drive through so nobody had to get close to us. In the two seconds they had our attention, as they were passing by, people crying, I have cancer, I was nervous to go out. So I know you've been helping a lot of people in town. Could I connect you with a nursing group that's desperate for masks? Yeah, I would love to. Uh, I'd love to speak to them, see if we could possibly help them out. Hi, Chris. This is Charles. I wanted to connect you two because I know you are in desperate need for masks. You've got nurses working all over um, with fragile patients. So, Charles, by any chance, do you have any extra masks? We do have some extra inventory. So, Chris, what we'd love to be able to do is donate at least 2,000 masks. Wow, that would be that would be amazing. If I could reach through and hug you, I would. Virtual <laughs> <laughs> <a> hug. <laughs> That was Charles Rick stepping up tonight. Here are some more headlines on the virus this evening. The U.K. will test a potential vaccine on humans later this week. San Francisco closing a dozen streets to cars to allow people on foot and bicycles more room for social distancing. And Massachusetts is closing all public and private schools for the rest of the academic year. That is because of a big spike of cases in that state. Dr. Jeremy Faust teaches at Harvard Medical School and sees patients in Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital. He's taking a break from the front lines to join us live once again tonight. Dr. Faust, it is good to see you again. I suppose you're not surprised at all by this news to close public and private schools for the rest of the year. I'm not surprised at all. I think that the mayor here has been very data driven and the data changes and we change our policy. And so that makes sense right now. We need to move forward when it's safe to do so. We are all eager to resume life as we used to know it. But I think that no one would like to do that if, uh, in exchange, you saw a burden of disease that tore through our cities like New York saw. We don't want to have that happen here. We've had it bad enough. We said that you're taking a break from the front lines tonight, but take us to the front lines once again, if you could. How are things at your hospital? Well, we're, we're well-resourced here in Boston in general, but it, we're day-to-day. -day. And so right now what I could say is, for example, our intensive care units are at 70% capacity, but that's in the context of expanded capacity. We got ahead of this, saw it coming, expanded the capacity, and even now we would be over if we didn't expand. When I see patients today and they come in and they come in and they come in, I am I'm blown away by how prevalent this disease is in our communities. And now that it's been in Boston for weeks, not days, we are seeing what we expect, which is the cases become more and more severe because the virus takes a little time to do its work, so to speak. And so I've been in the situation where um, I'm glad to be able to do it, but I'm having to save more lives, more direct uh, intubations, more, uh, more things that really require critical care. So we're seeing that even though the number of new cases has leveled off just slightly. New York appears to be peaking, Dr. Faust. Do you have an idea when you think Massachusetts may? Well, we know that over the past several days, new cases have come down consistently. But what we don't know is, is that because we are missing uh, 
new cases because of inadequate testing. We're doing a decent job here, but the problem with talking about peaks is that kind of presupposes that this has a, a shape that, that if only we could just jump ahead and look at it, we could see it in the rearview mirror. We actually can change the peak. If we all of a sudden went back to life as we knew it before, uh, we'd have a peak right away or very soon after. So I can't say when, but what I can say is that I think that we flattened the curve to some extent, and we need to stay the course to make sure that we don't get a huge spike down the road here. You've been out spoken against hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Um, tonight, the NIH study that I mentioned earlier with Dr. Gottlieb recommending or at least showing that it doesn't work as some thought and, in fact, could be dangerous. Your reaction to that news this evening? Well, what I, I wouldn't say I'm against these treatments. What I would say is I'm in favor of science proving whether they work or they don't work. And getting ahead of that without the science is the most important thing that everybody should be looking for. Hope is not enough. You need data. And what we have a piece of data uh, now from the Veterans Administration hospitals that are showing us that, well, it's, gonna, it's hard to 100% interpret that to say it doesn't work. What I would say is it doesn't look like the miracle cure that was marketed to us by the White House, and that's not surprising. And it looks like there are cardiac side effects that are real. So we still need to have a, a, a trial, a randomized controlled trial with a placebo and an and a drug and see how that works because then you'll find out if there are any people who benefit from it at all or if it just hurts everybody and that's where we're at right now is that we're beginning to see that when you do science correctly that you have the opportunity to keep everybody safe and hopefully find a benefit but if you don't you can't make it up you can't pretend like you are I should have been more specific you're against politicians talking about hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin being used together. That's fair. I, I think that people all want to believe in something, and we all want our leaders to instill a modicum of hope. But what they could do instead of getting out of their lane with respect to reading a scientific journal is to say, here's what we know works. We know that sheltering in place in high-prevalent areas works, and we know that um, just keeping an eye on testing will help us because we can follow the, the virus. So I get worried that we focus on the wrong things. Dr. Faust, be well. Thank you very much for having me. It's good having you back. That's Dr. Faust up in Massachusetts for us tonight. Here's what's coming up on the CNBC special report. Markets in turmoil. Ahead, something very big is happening in the world of insurance that will impact businesses large and small. Plus, power shift. Former White House Chief of Staff and Mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, on new roles for local politicians. And what must happen to make our cities safe for business again. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, is coming right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. 
Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Welcome back. New York's governor is right now addressing the media following his return from his meeting with President Trump. Let's listen in to Governor Cuomo. The state that had the most pain and death should get a bill because they endured pain and death. I mean, it makes no sense. Uh, So that was a lot and it was uh, complicated, uh, but vitally important. And uh, the resolution was uh, good across the board. Uh, We met not just with the president, but with members of his team, because a lot of this is granular and detailed. And if you don't work out the details, there is no conceptual agreement, right? It has to be uh, on the details so people actually know what we're agreeing to. Uh, And it was on that level. So I thank all the people on the president's team uh, who made themselves available and uh, worked this through with us uh, in detail. And it's a really positive, positive resolution. Any questions? So, Governor, did you get any commitment on either testing or aid or no? Yes. What was that? Commitment is to uh, attempt and make all efforts to double the number of tests that the state is taking from 20,000 to 40,000. Federal government will work on the supply of tests and reagents from the national manufacturers. They'll take that half of the equation. We will take the half of the equation that is working with the labs in the state and getting them to perform the tests. But we need the test kits from the manufacturers. National manufacturers need the supply chain. That's what the federal government will be doing. We'll be working with the labs to actually get the test takers, go out, take the test, and run those tests in the labs. So can we expect those tests to come to New York, and how much will that cost? It will take several weeks at best. This is an enormous undertaking to go from 20 to 40. Uh, All right, that's New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo having just returned from the White House in a meeting with President Trump. They discussed testing, as you heard there, hoping to double the efforts in the state here from 20,000 to 40,000. So we'll keep our eye on that. Meantime, governors and local politicians across the country working on their plans to restart businesses in their states. With us tonight is the former mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, and what he thinks this process will look like. Mr. Mayor, thank you for being here. It's good to see you. Good to see you. If you were still running... Hope you're healthy. Uh, you as well, and thank you. If you were still running a large city like Chicago, how would you handle the reopening of a city that size? Well, first of all, I, I do think you have to think of it in phases, and you've got to understand I have a conceptual frame. Uh, what we have is a conflict. The public health narrative and the kind of premise of public health is about keeping people separated. The economy is about integration and interdependence. And so those two principles are, in, as you could tell, integration, separation, they're in conflict. So you've got to have a more coherent strategy. And part of that effort is not only the coherence, is also making sure that people have confidence to move forward. That is what you're trying to establish, both trust in the system and therefore giving people confidence to go in. So one piece is testing, and that's a big piece of it. Two is also letting them know that the public health system is up, running, and effective at handling pieces. 
Second is I would have an analysis of the economy. What happens in the, let's say, financial services, legal versus entertainment, restaurants is totally different. And then aggregate that, separate it, understand uh, each piece of it, and then almost like a dial, begin to dial up pieces of the economy. And I do think one of the things that's needed from a leader, I've always said this going back to the White House days, in a crisis, you need the clarity of uh, candor. I think that's been missing on a national level. I don't think that's true at a local level. And I think that's why the public has responded both to governors and mayors. And I think that clarity of candor allows people to, if you level with them, I think the greatest thing that's happened is not only our nurses, our doctors, I come from a medical family, they have done incredible work at self-sacrifice of their own well-being, their family. The public has also done a tremendous job in understanding their role. If you tell them, okay, here's where we're going to go in four weeks, here's what we got to get done, here's what I need you to do to help us get to that as a team, as a family, as a city, as a community. And then after those four weeks, here's what else we're going to do. Everybody has the same cabin fever, but everybody also has the same concerns about their family and its well-being and its safety and their own neighborhood. And if you lay that out, ask people to play a role, understand what the goals are in very succinct over a period of, let's say, two months, I think you'll get people pulling together as a team to do that. And knowing each part of the economy has different kind of pressure points on it and capacity. But you can do it and do it effectively. But, like, take one area restaurants, just to pick a sector. You know, you're going to have to have a different floor plan. You're going to have to have a different capacity. You have capacities today no bigger than 200 because of fire hazards. That may dramatically have to shrink. You're going to ask them to send in different plans and blueprints for, I'm doing this random, it's not medically driven or scientific, 100 at any one given time, mm-hmm. and how you're going to reconfigure the floor plan to do that. That's the type of thing that has to be going on as much as testing. And we do know now, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was going to say, do do you foresee testing everyone at some point who comes into a restaurant or an office building in a major city in America? Well, so let me say this. I think there's an emphasis on testing as if that's it. One of the things we know now, which we didn't know two months ago, we know a little more, but I want to, and again, my dad was a pediatrician, my brother is an oncologist, my mother was uh, a radiology nurse. Look, there's a reason you have a second opinion in medicine. It's educated guessing. It's not just science. Here are the facts. Here's the data. We know that about a little less than a quarter to one-fifth of everybody that's, uh, that's been a real target of this and have had a higher mortality rate is seniors in either nursing homes or in uh, long-term living. Also, people with overweight uh, that also have diabetes and other pre-existing conditions. The public health system should be concentrating on the most vulnerable pieces of our population, and a lot of that is about poverty, and it's about people in vulnerable uh, positions that can't social distance. You can't do it in a nursing home. You can't do it in a long-term care. So it's both testing and the infrastructure of a public health system. If you go back to Korea, they aggregated the population and then applied limited resources in a very strategic sense. So testing just in big, broad strokes doesn't really actually address how you want to think about the public health aspect. That then allows other aspects of, I think, uh, the economy and, I would also say, society to open up and participate again. And we have to also just be honest with people. 
This is not going to be going from A to B. There's going to be a dial up. There's going to be a dial back. If you look at what's going on in Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, Japan, there has been some increases of recent, so they have to have readjust. And it's not going to be today we left, you know, there's before the virus, there's after the virus. It's going to be not a flipping of a switch. It's going to be a dial up, dial back down, dial back up until we get a vaccine. You, yeah, sure. And you, I think I do. You'll finish your thought. Finish your thought, please. Then I'd like to discuss something no. from your book. It's a, that's a, let me say this. I have, a, I have three teenage kids. That's the longest conversation I've ever had in a, like, a, <laughs> like six years. So don't worry about it. <laughs> your book uh, is entitled The Nation City, yeah. Why Mayors Are Now Running the World. Somewhat prescient sort of in the way it's come down to the idea of the, the, the states, the cities are running in large parts the response individually to this specific yeah. crisis. Do, do you see the responsibility of mayors continuing to increase on the other side of this? And for yeah. that matter, governors, where the, the, the federal government plays, as the president has said during this crisis, more of a backup role. Well, first thing I would like you to do, since I have two very competitive brothers, since you've called my book prescient, I got two numbers. I want you to call both of them. I'd really appreciate that. Second, on a, on a very serious... On a series of, one of your look, brothers I can help about, you market the book. We know who he is. Uh, it cost me too much to ask him to be my agent. I would never pay that much. Uh, here's what I would say to you on, on this level is, look, I wrote the book because I saw something happening. I think, having worked in two White Houses for two great presidents, worked in Congress, I believe in the role of the national government that only the national government has a CDC... Only the national government has the NIH. Only the national government has a FEMA and capacity. I want them as a partner. I saw what was happening, that the dysfunction, the disinvestment led, and the lack of respect for the role of public, of a good, effective government was requiring both mayors, and at that time I was a mayor, to step up and do things that we had never done before and take on more and more responsibilities. I believe when we get through this process... There will be a reevaluation of at all levels. One, that I actually do believe that if you're a progressive, as I am, you believe that government can be an affirmative force for good. I think people have seen both what nurses at public hospitals and also private hospitals, but what the CDC, the NIH, when they're not working, what the problems are. I also think we're seeing, if you want an equitable society, we're going to have to make investments in the broadband and the universal online learning capacity of all our students, regardless of race or income. That's also going to be true about telemedicine. It's also going to be true about the needs of public health. It's also going to be new, true about the supply chain. And only the national government can lead that national uh, investment and that national strategy. Do I think mayors and governors are going to take on more and more responsibilities as they have over the last uh, eight years, ten years, because of... Uh, the absence or what I call the void of power and voids get filled? Absolutely. And they're going to continue to do that. I, but I do think when you look at the issues that we have to face, we're, I think this is a wake-up call that the years of disinvestment in our national government, the years of saying that a, the federal government couldn't even organize a one-car parade, those times are over. I think people see, you know, there's a famous quote by uh, Warren Buffett, when the tide goes out, you see who's been swimming without mm -hmm. their shorts on. And these years of starving the federal government of the essential resources to do the things that we expect of protecting us are going to come forward. And if you go back in history, 
when you look at what Teddy Roosevelt did with energizing the, uh, the national government because of the crises that we saw in public health, because of the crises we saw in our food safety, I think there's going to be a greater calling, not just at the local level, but for a national government mm -hmm. that is strong in setting the rules and regulations, clearing out the way for investments so that we all can benefit. And we do that fight between regulation versus the economy. We have that. We've had it for 200 years. We're going to have it for another 200 years. But at the end of the day, a clear regulatory regime of good and bad, of a floor plan that protects our safety, gives us the confidence to have an economy that all of us want to see, that then all of us can participate in. And I do think like this, the exposure of those who are most vulnerable in our communities, mm -hmm. people of color, people of low income, means we have to make a certain amount of investments to raise up their standard of living and also their health. Because if they're not well, it's going to come back to haunt all of us. Rahm Emanuel, appreciate the time very much. You be well, sir. Talk to you again soon. Thank you for concentrating on this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being with us this evening. There is more straight ahead on this special report, Markets in Turmoil. What happens when businesses start filing insurance claims due to the virus? Tonight, a first taste of what's coming. Two major players locked in a dispute are with us tonight. Next. Before the break, images from around the world on the 114th day of this global pandemic. Have you back with us tonight? We're getting a first look at a major battle shaping up between insurance companies and businesses. How much will insurers be on the hook for companies claiming damages caused by the virus? Our Contessa Brewer has more tonight. Hi, Contessa. Hi there, Scott. Yeah, Chubb just announced earnings, but it warned the real coronavirus hit is coming down the road. Today, Traveler CEO waved a red flag about a flood of new business disruption claims, which travelers and other insurers are denying because these policies generally only cover business disruption when there's physical damage to a property. The policies specifically exclude disruption resulting from a virus. And now eight states have pending legislation that would force insurers retroactively to pay out on non-covered claims. The bill in New York has 22 co-sponsors in the state assembly, and it would force insurers to pay on policies that cover businesses with 250 or fewer employees. I've got bars, restaurants, small businesses um, that have been paying for years tens of thousands of dollars um, in business interruption insurance. The insurance industry is sitting on hundreds of billions of dollars. And for them to say that they don't have a role in paying claims, I find that um, to be unconscionable. 
That's the legislator who's introduced the bill in New York, but insurers already are complaining, and this was before coronavirus, that litigation is a major cost for them. And now they are expecting a tidal wave as the claim denials are issued. These lawsuits are just beginning. With me tonight is celebrity attorney Mark Garagos, probably best known for representing Michael Jackson, and he's suing his insurer, Travelers, for denying his business disruption claim. Travelers has turned the tables and is suing the firm of Garagos and Garagos in federal court. Ted Boutros is with Gibson Dunn representing Travelers. Both gentlemen join me tonight. It's good to see you. All right. Mark, let me begin with you. Why do you think that your insurance policy should cover the business disruption you've experienced? Because that's what we paid for. That's what all of our clients have paid for. And the uh, insurance companies have changed their theory along the way. I'm glad Mr. Boutros <coughs> is on here because he's late to the party. The insurance company's script has changed over the four weeks since this started. And once they realized that the science caught up, uh, they were caught with their virtual insurance pants down. And that's why they've now tried to their forum shopping now by suing in federal court. All right, I want to ask you, because this physical damage is something that I've looked through your policy. I saw it there. Was there physical damage to your property, Mark? This is what they're trying to do. They first said that it requires physical damage. That was before they had the science that said that this virus could be carried both airborne and on surfaces. Once they saw that, they abandoned the physical damage uh, exclusion, if you will, and now they fabricated a new argument, and the new argument is that the virus exclusion is what uh, excludes coverage. When they know full well that this isn't a, the business interruption is caused by the civil authorities, namely in our case in L.A. by the mayor shutting down all the businesses that are virtually or called non-essential. Okay, so Ted, jump in here. Is the civil authority action triggering what should be business disruption coverage? Well, first, Contessa, let me just say it's good to hear Mark's voice. And we are in a, in a crisis in this country. We're trying to get the economy going. We're talking about insurance contracts that, as you know, are uh, agreements and premiums are paid based on the risk covered. And here, here, Mr. Garagos is an excellent lawyer. He his law firm uh, is making claims, but the policy itself only covers business uh, interruption where it's physical, direct, direct physical damage to the, pro the property. If there was a fire that then stopped him from being able to use his law office, that would be one thing. But here, a virus on a surface is not physical damage. It's common sense. But even if we could take that and, and agree with it, which, which is wrong, there's a virus exclusion, which when Mr. Garrido sued multiple times in California, he failed to mention. It's not fabrication. It's in the contract in big, bold letters. The policy excludes losses and damages that um, are result from a virus like the coronavirus. Uh, and so it's just right there in black and white. And, and as we try to bring the economy back, we need to protect small businesses. And Travelers is, is working with its customers, with, with its agents reducing premiums, delaying premiums, getting money to the agents and brokers who are small businesses, but we can't wipe out the law of yeah. contract here, and that's what, and impose retroactive liabilities. 
Yeah, the, Ted, why is Traveler uh, suing Garagos in federal have, court? Ted and I have known each other for many years, and uh, I have an equal amount of respect for Ted. The, his client, though, has taken the position and announced today, and I'm sure Ted, if he had his choice, would have pressed the mute button on the CEO at Travelers. He announced that the lawsuit that we filed was frivolous, and at the same time, he filed, or his lawyers filed, Mr. Boucher filed, the, uh, an identical lawsuit in the federal court to the one that we had filed against Travelers in the state court. The uh, virus exclusion does not apply to the business interruption. That's the problem. They, nobody anticipated the pandemic. Nobody uh, anticipated a civil authority. The civil authority, which is when you say civil authority, that's nothing more than the mayor saying that you have to close down. And by the way, the mayor sending out the LAPD, the Los Angeles Police Department, to criminally Ted, cite anybody who was operating so that there is some enforcement of that as well. Ted, that's does what the, triggers does, the business does interruption. That, does the virus... It, Okay, Ted, no, it does it? It's a authority is what closes the, the virus didn't the close us. And in addition to that, the irony of this, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court weighed in last week and already said that this pandemic is right. tantamount to a tornado or an earthquake, so they, they should pay. And what Ted. all the insurance last companies word. are trying to do is just yes. accumulate the, uh, yeah, the virus exclusion. The virus that. exclusion excludes anything resulting from the virus. The pandemic results from the virus. The mayor's order was caused by the pandemic and the virus, so it clearly applies. And Mr. Garrigo sued our mayor in the middle of him trying to keep us safe, which is outrageous. We think it was just a fraudulent joinder meant to avoid federal court where these issues should be heard. And so we want everyone to, to thrive and survive and come out of this. Wiping out contracts and imposing retroactive liability is going to hurt everyone, including other insureds on other risks like wildfires, Hurricanes yeah, and, and, and the like. So it's nothing Ted, more than the insurance companies. Will yeah, do guys, I'm going to have to leave it there. Ted Boutros, Mark Garagos, gentlemen, thank you very much. Scott, you can hear this is the tip of the iceberg on this because you've got all of these state legislators, coast to coast, who are ready to dive in and tackle this as well. And for the insurance companies, they're saying this is an existential threat and likely to be a constitutional fight on their hands. A debate that is likely contested to be continued. Thank you very much. That's Contessa Brewer reporting there. Let's take a last look at futures quickly before we go after another tough day on Wall Street. Looks like we would open higher if it happened now. For all of us at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. Please be well. I'll see you at noon on the half. Shark Tank is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.